0: Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Biblically and Beyond podcast. I'm your host, Justin Paley. And in today's episode, now that we've read through the entirety of the Gospel of Luke, we will devote the next couple episodes towards doing uh, an analysis of the text and investigating various features of the Gospel. Okay, so really looking forward to these next couple of episodes as the uh, the Gospel of Luke is one of my personal favorites. I find it to be just a really fascinating text. Uh, and so now that we've read through the the entire text, um, I thought it would be good to sort of take a retrospective and and revisit some of the key features of Luke's Gospel and see what it could what it could tell us or any insights that it might give us. I just sort of um, spitball from there and see where that takes us. So one of the most interesting things about the text, at least in my opinion, is actually the, the first couple of lines. So in Luke 1, the first couple of sentences read, Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who, from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. So there's... There's a lot to unpack there, uh, and I always was really, really fascinated by these couple of lines, because it's, it, it is the one spot where the gospel author is, for lack of a better way to put it, speaking to the audience. You know obviously, each gospel has its own unique things about it that come from the author, but... Um, This is the the first where we we get one of these authors actually addressing the audience in a more direct manner, apart from the gospel narrative, which I find really, really interesting. So let's go through this line by line. So the first line about how many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed on to us by those who, from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word." So, first first couple of words there. Um, since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account. So first question that, that comes to mind for me is, well, who's the men? Who, who, is, who is Luke referring to? Is he referring to Mark's Gospel? Is he referring to Matthew's Gospel? Is he referring to a Gospel that's no longer available to us? Is he uh, maybe even referencing something like Paul's letters? Uh, it's it's hard to know. Uh, there's there is not a uh, there's not a firm answer to that. It could be any or none of those. Um, but it's clear that by the time Luke is writing, and most scholars would date his Gospel as well as Acts of the Apostles, which is sort of like a volume two of Luke's Gospel, even though it's separated in in modern Bibles, separated by the Gospel of John, originally circulated as as a single text. But uh, the 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 Gospel of Luke, most scholars think, was written somewhere between roughly. 80 and 120 AD. Um, Give or take some years in there, obviously a rough approximation, but somewhere late first, possibly early second century. So it's clear that by the time Luke is writing, there are other accounts out there. Now we know as a fact that Luke used at least the Gospel of Mark as a source. So. Luke is writing at a time where there are at least some gospel texts that are circulating to different early Christian communities to the extent where Luke actually had a copy and was able to read it and and use it as a as a main source. Now, personally, for me, and we've talked about this in uh, in a past episode on the sources of the Gospels. I uh, am a believer in the Farrer hypothesis um, which basically states that Luke used both mark and Matthew as as a source rather than the more traditional stance which probably still holds a majority in scholarship currently but not as not as dominant as it was even 10 15 years ago uh, which is Q uh, essentially you know, to make a long story short, it says that Mark was written first. Both Luke and Matthew used Mark, but they did not know of or use each other as a source. They got their, that other information that's not in Mark, but that they share from this hypothetical source called Q that we, we don't have. There's a, a lot of rabbit holes I can go down and, and talk about all day, but uh, long story short, Um, I I say that as my opinion because there are good arguments to be made that Luke did not use uh, Matthew as a source, but I only bring that up to address this, this first line here about who Luke may be talking about when he says, many. Now, the second part there is, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Another really interesting, tantalizing line here. So it's clear that Luke is not presenting his text, his gospel text, as coming from an eyewitness, at least directly. Now, he is claiming that the the stories and the events that uh, he's going to go to relate throughout the, the gospel text do have a basis in the original apostles who were actually there and witnessed and lived these things. So while Luke himself might not have been one of those original people in the inner circle there for all of those famous events and parables, et cetera, et cetera, uh, he is claiming that the material that the reader will encounter is, um, for lack of a better way to put it, authentic. And because it is authentic, because it can trace its origins all the way back to this original circle of uh, eyewitnesses and apostles, that does naturally credit it with a lot of uh, authority and standing. And we see very similar uh, things being played out, for example, in the... uh, In Paul's letters where you have later followers of Paul for example the the person or or people who wrote the pastoral epistles for 2nd Timothy and Titus where they're trying to link it to these foundational um, early members of Christianity as a way of gaining authority for their own view or text and Luke is doing something similar here except Um, He is not necessarily tying his name to it, I mean, similar to all the other Gospels, they they first circulated anonymously, so uh, it's a little bit different than the situation we have with Paul's letters, but nonetheless, it is that crucial key to that original, original group that does bestow the ultimate authority on the text. So, to finish off the, the the verse here, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. So a couple things here. First, and what really uh, originally got me really, really uh, into this, uh, this little portion uh, of Luke, is that he's referencing somebody specifically or I should say, maybe, referencing somebody specifically, that person being most excellent Theophilus. Now, in terms of Theophilus, if you look in your Bible, it's going to be capitalized, and it's going to naturally seem like it's somebody's name. Now, it is possible that Theophilus was a specific person that Luke knew. And if that was the case, then Theophilus most likely was a patron of some sort of Luke's and, and sort of financed Luke's research and uh, bought the writing materials and all the other expenses involved in producing this text. So he would have been a, a supporter of Luke's in some way, shape, or form. And so uh, because of that, Luke is uh, in some way, shape, or form um, almost dedicating the text to him in a way, as a way... Um, bestowing honor back on to his his patron to recognize him for his patronage now there's also a possibility that theophilus is just a stand in for a larger audience and what I mean by that is theophilus really just means like lover of god um, in in the original Greek so some scholars and I will say for myself i go back and forth i don't I don't really know or have a strong opinion, to be quite honest, but some scholars argue that by using Theophilus, Luke is essentially saying, well, I wrote all these things for you, you know, everyone who, who loves God, um, this, this text is, is for you, I wrote this for you. So it's not necessarily writing for a specific individual named Theophilus, but writing to a wider community of of God lovers, so to speak. Uh, And this is Luke's way of um, introducing the text. Now, the thing that does speak in favor of that is that you might be saying to yourself, well, how come Luke's is the only one that has this uh, sort of opening introduction of sorts? Uh, we don't see anything of the sort in Matthew and Mark we see a little bit in John i guess but it's it's very very different and it's it's very much tied to the gospel narrative itself but um this opening really does follow a a classical hellenistic uh convention that was part of um greek and roman authors who Wrote it's most often in, in histories that they were they were writing histories or or other sorts of related texts. Um, and a- actually, I do want to create uh, correct an error that I made earlier when I said Theophilus means lover of God. It really just means friend of God. Um, so, lover is probably <laughs> too strong of a translation. There, uh, it would be more accurate to say friend of God. But nonetheless, that the main point about it potentially appealing to a general audience, still stands. So what's, what's hard to figure out here is how, when, when Luke was writing this, how did he envision this, this little introduction functioning? And I I bring up the point that this prologue of sorts does follow known writing customs from the Greco-Roman world because it might very well just be that. It, it, meaning, Luke, as somebody who, and we'll get into this probably in a later episode in more detail, but one thing that will become increasingly obvious and in that if you read Luke's gospel and then go read Matthew's, for example. Luke's definitely portrays more of a, for lack of a better word, a Gentile focus. Um, So whoever Luke was, we don't know who he or she was, um, or really anything about them. Uh, But we can infer from the, the text, and we do have quite a large sample size between Luke and Acts, uh, it takes up you know almost half of the New Testament. Uh, essentially, um, we we can see that whoever Luke was, he was a very educated, um, a, a very educated Gentile. And so, why am I so confident in in asserting that? Well, a couple of things, and and we'll point again to specific. Uh, examples in later episodes, but it, Luke does not portray a lot of knowledge of Jewish customs in the way that somebody like Matthew does. And Matthew, almost all scholars would say, is comes from a thoroughly Jewish background and, and is very well versed in, in first century Judaism. Luke is not. And also throughout the gospel, you have more focus on Gentiles and non-Jews. Uh, so you know the stuff like Good Samaritan, though you find that in other places as well. But there are just other stories that Luke includes, or that little changes that that he makes that reflect more of a Gentile sympathy, and that leads many scholars to argue that Luke was writing for a Gentile audience, and that makes sense because very quickly in the early Christian movement, which started as very much a thoroughly Jewish movement within Judaism. Uh, very quickly developed into a, a religious movement that was dominated by Gentiles rather than Jews. And that really started to take hold, especially uh, starting in the late first century. So it would makes sense that Luke, for example, we can imagine if he knows Mark and Matthew, and he doesn't really feel like there is a text for a, a more Gentile uh, dominant community that they can really understand in a way that Luke thinks is important. Um, and so he writes again, he knows that there are other accounts out there, so there has to be something that is really driving him to, to write down this account. Um, and so of course we can't know for sure, but Um, Writing it for his community or for Gentile communities, that would make sense. And there are certainly uh, aspects of the gospel text that point to a a Gentile background for for Luke. Now, another thing that I do want to stress again, even though I I just said it a minute earlier, is that he is extremely well-educated, whoever Luke actually was. The, the Greek, the original Greek of Luke-Acts, is some of the best, and some would even argue the best, in the entire New Testament. Uh, other, there are a couple of other texts that might rival it. Um, for example, the Second Peter, randomly, um, has really, really good Greek, uh, as well as Hebrews. Hebrews, whoever wrote Hebrews, was an extremely well-educated individual who wrote very sophisticated Greek. But um, Luke is on par with any of those other texts, and generally speaking, actually, when you compare the texts of the New Testament to other, either contemporary or just generally speaking, Greco-Roman texts, um, most of the texts are relatively low-brow in the sense that it's, it's common Greek, so the Greek of of the gospel of Mark is very crude. It's not, it, it, it reads at, um, I, I don't know exactly the, the, what the most accurate way to describe it would be in terms of like it's uh, what it's equivalent would be in modern parlance in the sense that like he's writing at a high school grade level or he's writing at a college level. So take what I say in this respect with a grain of salt. But if, Mark is writing, let's say, at a high school level, whereas Luke is is writing absolutely at a at a college, if not higher, level. So Luke is more representative of something like um, uh, the Odyssey or or Plato or something like that, uh, though not quite at that level because those are being written in an older form of Greek, whereas the New Testament's written in what's called Koine Greek, which is basically just, you know, common Greek, uh, versus Attic Greek, which is the the Greek of those older Greco-Roman texts. I'm not sure when Attic Greek stopped being used, but certainly by the first century and uh, by the first century AD and certainly also by the first century BC, uh, Attic was not, really being used and it was Koine greek that was by far the the dominant strain of greek that was being used across the greco-roman world but that is all to say that there had to be some there had to be some reasons for for luke to write this gospel and he got his education we don't again don't know any of the details about it but assuming that he grew up in a gentile household no he would have probably studied under some very sophisticated and possibly well-known authors or tutors or educators of the time. We really cannot say any more than that, but we can certainly say that um, Luke was probably one of the most well-educated Christians of his time. No doubt about that. So now that we've treated the, that just the first couple lines there, um, we can move on to the text, um, to, to the narrative text, which which starts in verse five. And Luke starts off by talking about that all of this started, he, he sort of sets the scene for us in the Kings of in the days of King Herod of Judea, there's a priest named Zachariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was descended of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. It goes on and on and on from there. But what will immediately strike anybody who reads the first couple chapters of Luke is that, one, it differs from Mark and John, that it has a, a birth narrative. Uh, a very lengthy birth narrative, which he shares that feature with Matthew, which also has a a virgin birth narrative. But Luke's is very different than than Matthew's. There are a lot of differences. I'm not going to sit here and, you know, go through every single difference. You can go in and read the text for yourselves, and it'll immediately become apparent, you know, just how many differences there are. So that brings up a really interesting Another interesting question from a historical perspective is, if we assume that Luke had Mark, he was certainly aware of it, probably had a physical copy of it, had certainly read it, and if we assume that Luke knew of Matthew, or at least some other gospel out there, probably not the gospel of John, because it was too late, uh, or was most likely written too late for Luke to have known it, but uh, it's possible. But regardless, Luke knew other Gospel narratives out there, and one that he knew for sure, the the Gospel of Mark, did not have any sort of birth narrative. So Luke is not um, woodenly beholden to his sources. Uh, in the sense that he's not afraid to add in things here, subtract things there. And if we also assume that he knew Matthew, he knew that Matthew had a birth narrative, but he goes, you know, I'll say out of his way to, uh, craft a different birth narrative. Now we don't know if this is Luke's content that he came up with. We don't know if he got it from another source that's unknown to us. But he didn't get it from any of the texts that we know today, that's for sure. So regardless of if he got it from a different source or he came up with it himself, it's clear right from the beginning that we are not reading a text that is beholden to its sources or reading an author that feels like they cannot have any sort of creative license over the the text. And so this raises um, memories of Genesis 1 and 2, in that when people go and read Genesis 1 and 2, and they see these two um, undisputably different creation stories, it leads one to naturally want, wonder, well, you know, why, when they're so obviously different from one another and can't be reconciled in any reasonable way, why did somebody keep these two you know why was it deemed necessary now there are a lot of um, interesting arguments in the case of genesis that i'm not going to rehearse but it's clear that for luke he is okay with not having uh the same birth narrative from other texts that he knows of so he's not necessarily interested in preserving every single different strand of tradition. It seems like he, he is much more focused on, as he says at the beginning, writing an orderly account so that they could know the truth concerning things which they have been instructed. So the people that Luke is is writing for you know they've heard about Jesus, about his deeds, about what he's done, about God, about Everything that goes into that, uh, but now Luke wants to write an orderly account of that. You know how did this all happen? How did this all happen? and so naturally, that brings on well, where did Jesus come from <laughs> and um, it's we 've also talked about the the growth of the birth narrative in in an older episode as a way of essentially demonstrating the, the growth of Christian tradition and how differing circumstances most likely require these early Christian authors to write texts or come up with certain events or episodes that legitimized um, something in particular. So in the case of Jesus' birth, Again, we can't know for sure, but I'm personally convinced that it was probably born of two main things. One, just a natural curiosity of, you know, where did Jesus come from and wanting to know more about his background. Um, and two, uh, this, uh, this idea that Jesus was illegitimate in some way. Um, it's... It, it was probably a common critique of of non Christians uh, as sort of a personal slight against Jesus, and so this way was also this birth narrative piece was also a way of explaining his origins. So, the birth narrative not part of the earliest gospel that we have, and it seems like by the amount of space that particularly Luke devotes to it, that it's very important to him See, it also brings in this uh, the John the Baptist's birth, too, and ties that in with Jesus, which is um, another really interesting aspect of Luke's gospel that we don't necessarily get many places. So there's this clear link between John the Baptist and Jesus from the very beginning, and Luke goes out of his way to craft this very um, divinely focused birth narrative, where you know you have the angel Gabriel coming to Mary in the famous Annunciation, and and all of these things that have become very famous events in Christianity, and it, it all points to one main thing, and, and it's that Jesus is both human, you know, born of a woman, but also comes from God. And to an extent, so does John, though, in in a very different way. But we see, if we compare, for example, Mark and Luke, we can see how Jesus is, even just within the span of a couple of decades, becoming more and more divine. And his divinity is being more and more stressed as part of his identity and part of, you know, even though they would not have used this term, um, sort of orthodox thinking, the the correct theology to have. We see this exaltation of Jesus as, as time goes on. And then you get to stuff like, you know, Gospel of John, which is uh, even compared to Luke, um, extremely the term scholars use as, as an extremely high Christology, meaning it's very, very focused on Jesus's divinity uh, and, and really hammering that point home. So we have this whole birth narrative, and it, it tells us that one Luke is very concerned with laying out the, the origins of Jesus as well as John the Baptist. He's also very concerned about tying all of these things to both some of the prophecies of the Old Testament as well as to just God himself and so from the very beginning we see this unique approach that Luke is taking and that's really going to set the scene for the coming chapters after he's done narrating the birth narrative and that is one from that first prologue there that luke has taken the time to do all this investigation he's consulted sources and he's wanted to uh, to write a narrative of his own so that everybody who's been hearing about all these things Um, they can actually know that that it's true and and really believe it and and know the actual, you know, what actually happened, even though um, we should not think of these Gospels as strict historical biographies in any way, shape, or form because they're not and there was no conception of that in the ancient world. So this is not history in the 21st century sense. This is history where and Luke would certainly fall under this category, even as an extremely well educated person that the things that he's writing in the text are not necessarily going to be taken as exact words per se, or like exactly how things happened, because that's not the main concern. The main concern is sort of the the main points and the progression of those points and how they tie back into the larger story of the God of Israel and the Jewish people and establishing God's kingdom on earth, etc., etc. That point is much much more important, uh, and so to. Because with these sorts of episodes, I always like to tie this back into a modern day day issue, rather than just talking about the the scholarly and historical aspect. But that point has ramifications for how we understand the the New Testament and the Gospel text today because some people are really uncomfortable with the fact that we have four gospels that are all very different from one another and to, I would say any sort of reasonable person who's trying to look at things somewhat objectively that there are aspects that just can't be reconciled. Uh, They not all four gospels can be right, (laughs) but that shows us that, Um, Both because Luke tells us he knows other accounts and then proceeds to write accounts that are different and contradictory to, presumably, at least some of those accounts. As well as the later Christians who were deciding, essentially deciding what text made it into what we call the New Testament. They didn't necessarily see a problem with that. And the same goes for a lot of the Old Testament stuff, too. But in relation to the New Testament, some people will try to jump through loops just to try to defend this idea that, you know, they might be four different texts, but they're telling the exact same story just from different perspectives. Now, that might be true to an extent, but um, in doing so, most of those people are arguing that there's no contradictory elements within the, the Gospels, and they all essentially agree with each other, which just... I would say flat out is not true, and um, uh, not a good way to represent the text and be faithful to the original purposes of the text. Because the texts were not trying to do that; they were not trying to present a step-by-step uh, outline of Jesus's life with with trying to nail down the exact words down to you know every and and the. It, it's not. It's, there, there was no, that's such a foreign concept to introduce to the, the world of the first century that these early Christians were operating within. So uh, I think that uh, that's a good place to stop from here because then after the birth narrative, we start getting into the, um, the actual ministry of Jesus. Um, so we'll we'll end this episode here. Um, and then in the next episode, we will pick up where we, we left off and, um, focus on uh, a couple of instances in the next couple of chapters of, of Luke. And I'm going to try to, to keep these pretty general because otherwise, you know, Luke is a long book and, and we'll have six, seven episodes. So I'm going to try to limit it to probably three total episodes. The one focusing as we did today on the very beginning, two, focusing on sort of those core chapters of the ministry of Jesus, and then the last episode being focused on the death and resurrection. So I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I will catch you in the next one.